From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Wade Menezes. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. Well, a tremendous Tuesday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. If you'd like to be part of the phone, uh, part of the uh, program, grab one of these open phone lines. The number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. Uh, if you're outside of the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. That number is one. 1- Two zero five two seven one two nine eight five, and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at one two zero five two seven one two nine eight five. You can always send us an email. That email address is openline at ewtn.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Kubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, as he is every Tuesday, our very favorite Father of Mercy, Father Wade Menezes. How are you? I'm doing great, Jack, in my body-soul composite. Ah, and well, there you go. <laughs> there you go. That, that's a um, philosophical answer for you. There you go. And I'm gearing so up had... for my I'm gear, gearing up for my Advent Parish missions here. Got two in California, in Modesto, California, my hometown, and Los Altos. So I'm looking forward to those. But next Tuesday, I'll still be here in in the Kentucky office with y'all. Yeah, they won't listen to a word you say in Modesto. That's scriptural. <laughs> um, so we Wait, what uh, scripture a... say? Does the scripture say that a prophet is not welcome in his own that's native exactly place? What that's what I'm getting at. That's what I'm saying. Uh, so. Um, uh, we had a great week last week. Thanks to all of our listeners and the whole Open Line family for uh, just a great week as we uh, shared with you the EWTN miniseries, The Transgender Movement, What Catholics Need to Know. And um, following up that topic, uh, Father Wade, you thought it might be uh, an opportune time to build on that and go into uh, one of the true treasures of Holy Mother Church, and that's the... Um, several-year teaching on the theology of the body by uh, St. Pope John Paul the Great. Yeah, that's right. And uh, incidentally, it's a chapter in my new book, Catholic Essentials, A Guide to Understanding Key Church Teachings, simply titled Theology of the Body. You know, uh, the Church receives, Jack, her, her teachings on the theology of the human body from several important sources. First of all, from her rich pedagogical, meaning teaching, patrimony, on the dignity of the human person made in the image and likeness of God, from Genesis chapter 1. And as the only creature that God has willed for its own sake, as the Second Vatican Council teaches so beautifully in its pastoral constitution on the Church in the modern world, Gaudium et Spes, um, the teachings of St. John Paul II uh, also contribute greatly uh, to this area of study, most notably his 129 papal audiences devoted to the subject and given at the Vatican from September 1979 through November 1984, per se on the subject of the theology of the body. But there's more. Uh, natural law, revealed moral law, 
uh, science and ontology, that branch of metaphysics dealing with the nature of being, uh, all contribute in their own important ways to the study of the theology of the body, right? Uh, but what exactly does theology of the body mean, quote, unquote? Uh, in breaking down the phrase, we know that theology is the study of God, from the Greek theos, God, and logia, uh, or, or logi, study of, right? So we know that theology means study of God. Uh, and when we say body here, we mean it specifically in reference to the human body. Thus, the phrase theology of the body could be defined as the study of God in, through, and about the meaning, reality, and being of the human body. Uh, the Magnus Corpus, the great work of Pope St. John Paul II on this topic especially, provides a most succinct manner in which to approach it and to study it. Uh, for example, the theology of the body, as John Paul integrated uh, the, its, its uh, main tenets, its main points, into the vision of the human person, we come up for, with several points that are important. Uh, the human body has a specific meaning, making a visible and invisible reality, and is capable of revealing answers regarding fundamental questions about us and our lives. Uh, for example, is there a real purpose to life? And if so, what is it? Uh, what does it mean that we were created in the image of God? Uh, why were we created male and female? Does that really matter uh, if we are one sex or the other? Does it, does it matter for one sex or the other? What does the marital union of a man and a woman say to us about God and his plan for our lives? Uh, what is the purpose of the married and celibate vocations? Uh, what exactly is love? Huh? Uh, is it truly possible to be pure of heart, uh, to practice the virtue of modesty, the virtue of purity, and the like? All of these questions and many more are answered in the 129 Wednesday audiences, again, which he gave uh, between 1979 and, and 1984, known collectively as the theology of the body of Pope John Paul II. His reflections are based on scripture and contain a vision of the human person truly worthy of man. Uh, emphasizing the theme of love as self-gift, the, the, these whole points, they counteract societal trends that view the body as an object of pleasure only, or as a machine for manipulation. Uh, but instead, the human body shows us the call and gives us the means to love in the image of God. St. John Paul II encourages a true reverence for the gift of our sexuality and challenges us to live it up in a way worthy of our own great dignity as human persons. His theology is not only for young adults and married couples, but for all ages and vocations, since it sums up the true meaning of being a person. Uh, in a beautiful section of Sacred Scripture, Jack, St. Paul exhorts the members of the church at Corinth to glorify God in both body and spirit. Uh, in talking about the body here, he states in part, shun immorality. Every other sin which a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So therefore glorify God in your body. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 18 to 20. Moral evils such as abortion and euthanasia, contraception, uh, embryonic stem cell research, and human cloning all challenge, they all challenge, right, 
the, the importance of the innate dignity of the human person, uh, as do unnatural marriage in its multiple and varied forms, uh, pornography, drug abuse, uh, human trafficking, uh, and the homeless crisis. Uh, gender, gender theory and gender ideology uh, promote metaphysical dualism and distort the reality and the very order of creation itself. Uh, that's from the document from the Vatican on, from Catholic Education called Male and Female, He Created Them. Uh, but, but given the awesome truth of the body-soul composite of the human person and the dignity that lies therein, we do well to study the Church's and Pope St. John Paul II's theology of the body, indeed a theology that resonates with love, truth, goodness, and beauty. And two quotes here, 1 Thessalonians 5.23, May the God of peace himself sanctify you wholly, and may your spirit and soul and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And from St. John Paul II, uh, he says this uh, in Gaudium et Spes, he says, the human body oriented interiorly by the sincere gift of the person, reveals not only its masculinity and femininity on the physical plane, but reveals also such a value and such a beauty as to go beyond the purely physical dimension of sexuality. And so uh, we have a beautiful patrimony, a a beautiful uh, pedagogical uh, heritage of meaning and study of the body-soul composite of the human person. And I wanted to focus today just on the one aspect of that compositeness, uh, just the body, that the body means something. Uh, And the theology of the body, again, we can say, uh, refers to very beautifully uh, the study of God, right? The study of God uh, uh, in, through, and about the meaning, reality, and being of the human body. So uh, I want to encourage our listeners, there's some good books out there um, on St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body. Um, look some of those titles up and, uh, and, and refer to them and, and use them. Educate yourself, especially the beginner's books. Uh, there's theolo- theological tenets here and also uh, philosophical tenets here, and we want to be able to, um, uh, be able to approach uh, both facets with, with reasonability, because our Catholic faith is reasonable, and it's well-grounded in, in sacred scripture and sacred tradition in the magistery. Just getting started on an open line Tuesday. Today, Father Wade Menezes is in the house. If you'd like to be part of the program, grab one of these open phone lines at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade Menezes. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question... Call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. That's right, 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, a free phone call anywhere in North America. Plenty of time for your calls and a couple of open phone lines for you at 833-288-3986. 
Just wanted to give a big shout out to the married couples that joined Johnette and I at the Malvern Retreat Center in suburban Philadelphia over the weekend for a marriage retreat. A great group of folks. And uh, we thank you for the terrific uh, time together uh, for the great weekend. And just a big shout out to uh, all of those married couples that joined us uh, at the Family Life Center there at the Malvern Retreat House. Um, You will continue to be certainly in our prayers. To the phones we go. Joe is in the great state of Pennsylvania. He's listening on Roku today. Uh, Joe, thanks for holding. You're on with Father Wade. Hi, Father Wade. What I'm calling about is my sister was Catholic. She used to go to Mass every Sunday, but then she went Protestant. She only goes to services once in a while. Well, my question is, will she be just as going to hell because missing Mass all those years, or will she be given leeway because Protestants don't have to go every, every Sunday? Okay, good series of questions, Joe. Thank you so, so much for your call today from Pennsylvania. You know, um, First of all, our Protestant brothers and sisters possess elements of the truth, but they don't possess the fullness of truth. That, that's number one. Number two is we would want to evaluate just how much does your sister know that leaving the faith is, is detrimental to her eternal life. You know, for example, I'll give you just this one example, because it, it, it explains well that the Church is teaching on this. Uh, the five precept laws of the Church. Uh, number one, you shall attend Mass on Sundays and on holy days of obligation, and rest from servile labor that is unnecessary. Number two, you shall confess your sins at least once a year. Number three, you shall receive the sacrament of the Most Holy Eucharist at least during the Easter season once a year. Uh, You shall observe, this is number four, you shall observe the days of fasting and abstinence established by the Church. And number five, you shall help to provide for the needs of the Church. Now, these five precept laws, granted, they're self-imposed by the teaching of the authority of the Church herself, the magisterium, but they're still rooted and grounded ultimately in sacred scripture and in the sacred tradition of the Church. But as far as there being laws, they are, they are laws, that is self-imposed by the authority of the Church, her magisterium, precisely because she has the reason to do so. Why do we have the five precept laws? Well, because when they're all practiced, they automatically ensure at least a minimal practice of one's Catholic faith, right? And Holy Mother Church, the Bride of Christ, which he founded, uh, and which we know by her four marks, one holy Catholic and apostolic, Catholic meaning universal, uh, we know that just like any good and natural physical mother, she wants to see her children practice the faith at least minimally. And so practicing the five precept laws automatically ensures that. The way the Catechism states it is that the practice of the five precept laws of Holy Mother Church, they guarantee, quote, the bare minimum of practice of one's Catholic faith. Now, is there room for improvement if one does only the five precept laws? Absolutely. There's always room for growth in charity and growth for involvement and living more fully one's baptism and one's confirmation, sustained by regular Eucharist and, and regular, regular reconciliation. So these are truths that you want to share with your sister, Joe, especially given the fact that you admit that she used to be a very fervent Catholic, a very active Catholic, but for some reason she's... she's fallen away from the Church and only periodically now goes to a Protestant faith. It would be a great opportunity for you, Joe, to witness to her about these truths and maybe share with her the wonderful Examination of Conscience and Catholic Doctrine brochure that's found at my community's website, fathersofmercy.com. 
If you scroll down a little bit uh, at the homepage, you can see both the Spanish and the English version of the Examination of Conscience and Catholic Doctrine brochure. So one complete side, Joe, of the brochure is the major tenets of Catholic doctrine, like the five precept laws, the Ten Commandments, the nine Beatitudes, the 14 works of mercy, seven for the body, seven for the soul, the three eminent good works, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, uh, the seven capital sins, the seven capital virtues, etc., one complete side are the major tenets of Catholic Christian doctrine. The other complete side, Joe, is a wonderful, very merciful examination of conscience to help prepare one to make a good holy confession, to hopefully get back to confession and get back to practicing uh, receiving the Eucharist again. So given your sister's history of being a, a fervent Catholic in her past, you know, maybe something happened that you don't know about that made her leave the faith. Maybe Maybe uh, a priest hollered at her one time, outside or inside the confessional. Uh, uh, maybe she had a run-in with a priest on some other issue. Maybe she's been dis disheartened by the scandals in the Church. Um, you know, maybe she just needs to talk. So I, I would, you know, Pope Francis talks about the theology of accompaniment. Just maybe be there for your sister and, and let her have the floor. Let her do the talking. And then in your own way, you can share with her the beauty of returning back to the faith, maybe even share with her the examination of conscience, and, and maybe you'll benefit from it too, Joe, by looking at it, and you can say, hey, you know, I found this examination of conscience and doctrine brochure that really moved me, it really helped me, so much so I feel called to share it with others, in, in the plural, and, and say, I'd like to give you one, and then you could share them with a few other people, so your sister's not the only one getting one. Because if she thinks she's the only one getting it, she might say to herself, well, what's he trying to tell me? Is he trying to tell me that I'm damned or something? Well, no, but we're telling you that, you know, we want you to live the, the fullness of your Catholic Christian faith of baptism. So, you know, print out several copies for yourself, for others, including your sister, and say, hey, I, this has really moved me. It's really reignited my faith, both the doctrinal side and, and the examination of conscience side. It's inspired me to make a more in-depth confession, and uh, so much so has it moved me, I feel called to share it with others. Uh, with an S at the end, plural, right? Others. And say, I'd like to give you one, sis, and, and then give her one. And, and this after you've heard her out and you, you've let her talk. And, uh, and just let it sit for a while. You know, we don't, we wanna, don't want to take the, the baseball bat method to people and, and hit, you know, hit things and, too strongly and, and, uh, and kind of turn them off because we're being too strong. We want to accompany. We want to meet them where they're at. Why? Because Holy Mother Church is ready to meet them where they're at. But she, she loves them enough to meet them where they're at, but she loves them even more to not leave them where they're at if they're in a state of objective mortal sin. So, you know, the, the subjective judgment, we don't know where she's at, Joe. We, only God knows the subjective judgment. But objectively, Joe, you are correct. Something's amiss here. She's not practicing her faith of baptism. And uh, it's an opportunity for you as her sibling, you as her brother, to, to witness to her in that regard. So um, thank you, Joe, very much. Does that kind of help you out, Joe? Uh, yeah, but the only thing I'm confused about is if she if she dies before I have a chance to tell her before she sinks in, will she be judged as having, having to be a Catholic all her life? If that, in spite of being Protestant, will she be given leeway for being Protestant and not going 
services uh, every Sunday. Well, again, it depends on how much she knows. How much does she know that the Catholic faith has the five precept laws that she's due to fulfill as, a, as an officially baptized Catholic? Uh, this is why we want to witness to others. Only God can judge subjectively the, and answer the question you're asking. But objectively, we here on earth can make objective judgments that something is definitely amiss here. For example, knowing she's a Catholic, number one, and knowing that either wittingly or unwittingly, she's not fulfilling the five precept laws, which guarantee at least a bare minimum of the practice of one's Catholic faith, as the Universal Catechism teaches so beautifully. And again, Holy Mother Church, being just that, a, a wonderful mother, she wants to see her children practice the faith at least minimally, right? Just as any natural physical blood mother, natural blood mother would want to see her children practice the faith at least, at least minimally. Thank you so much. Uh, great question. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Still a couple of open lines for you at 833-288-3986. Britain in Oklahoma called in. Father Wade, he couldn't stay on the phone, but he says he has a fallen-away Catholic friend, or a fallen-away friend who left the Catholic Church due to, a, due to the priest scandal, and she claims it was God that brought her to her new megachurch. Does God lead people away from the Catholic Church? God doesn't lead people away from the fullness of truth. Uh, God writes straight with crooked lines, and we in our own broken humanity, being uh, gravely uh, wounded and offended by the reality of the scandals, uh, can turn away on our own effort and be emotionally, spiritually fed at another church. But again, we want to question the reality of the sacraments, the reality of the Eucharist. Um, I'm, of, I'm of the school that believes very strongly that you cannot truly, sincerely, authentically know what the Eucharist is and then willfully turn your back on it. it it's seemingly impossible. For those who do so, they never really, truly, sincerely understood the doctrine of the real presence, uh, or at least they knew the doctrine, but they didn't live it. They didn't experience its reality in their own life. Because once you have experienced that, there's no way you can turn your, your back on it. So God writes straight with crooked lines, and again, he's willing to meet us where we're at, and God knows that she was gravely uh, uh, wounded and offended by the reality of the scandals uh, in the church, and so he's willing to be patient with her, wait with her, let her check out these other venues, and even some that might, that might uh, be feeding her spiritually. But it doesn't negate the fact that she's departed from the fullness of truth as the, the Second Vatican Council teaches so beautifully, especially in Lumen Gentium, the Light of Nations document. Um, the other thing, too, is I, I want everybody to remember, you know, we talk about church scandals. What comes to mind first is the priestly scandals, and rightly so, because they've rocked the church. But let us not forget the lay scandals, which this is one of the lay scandals, that the laity leave the faith. Um, that the laity don't practice confession, that the laity don't practice the Eucharist, etc. That's one of the scandals, too. Um, but, but as far as the priestly scandals go, remember, uh, the devil's after priests, and I'll tell you exactly why. Uh, no priests, no mass. No mass, no Eucharist. Uh, no Eucharist, no Jesus truly present. No Jesus truly present, no church which is his bride. No church which is his bride, no vehicle of salvation. No vehicle of salvation, no salvation, and no salvation means only one thing, damnation. 
as many of the church fathers wrote, for example, St. Irenaeus, he, where, where Jesus Christ is, there is the Catholic Church. And where the Catholic Church is, there is Jesus Christ. They're his sacraments. She's just the safeguarder, the safekeeper of them. So, um, you know, there's hope for everyone. There's always, always hope for everyone. Let us remember, friends, that um, the theological virtue of hope is one of just that, one of the three theological virtues, along with uh, faith and charity. Uh, So we always have the theological virtues of faith, hope, and charity at hand to love our neighbor, to have hope for our neighbor, and to want to share the faith with our neighbor. Uh, Great question. Thank you so much. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number straight ahead. We're going to talk to Prudence in the Republic of Texas, Chris in Illinois, Robin, who's also in Texas, and we'd love to hear from you. 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade Menezes. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Um, as advertised, we head to the Republic of Texas. Prudence is in Crossroads, Texas, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Prudence, thanks so much for holding. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for taking my call. The reason that I'm calling is because I always wonder, and my heart breaks for the, the, uh, those of us uh, and God's children who identify as lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, queer, because a lot of people who identify that way were raised in the Church. And I feel that we, as a Christian and religious community, have actually become a stumbling block to them approaching the throne of grace. I believe that the religious community has made them believe that God hates them, that God is not for them. And I'm not—if theology of the the body, which I haven't read, is supposed to bring um, them to God and through Jesus Christ, I don't believe that it does. In fact, I believe that it is a way to be anti-everything that they believe who they are, you know. So I really have a problem with this religious trauma that a lot of people are going through, people who love Jesus but don't feel like he loves them. And I, my heart breaks, and I really pray for those in the religious community, in the Christian community, who perpetrate this violence on them. Yeah, I, I feel bad for those who perpetrate violence on them as well, because that's surely not the approach of the Church at all in her teachings. You know, the Church uh, wants the individual, regardless of sexual orientation, regardless of their sex, uh, regardless of their vocation or state in life, single, married, or widowed, uh, to pursue virtue and virtuous living, uh, to pursue the good, the true, and the beautiful uh, in concrete daily actions. And we know the good, the true, and the beautiful through revealed moral law, okay, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments primarily. 
Uh, and then we know, example, for example, through our Lord's Sermon on the Mount, the uh, eight Beatitudes, or nine Beatitudes, depending on what trans- scripture translation you're looking at, because often the, the last one, number eight, is split up in two when you get a list of nine. So, for example, we believe that the Ten Commandments uh, and, and, and the eight or nine Beatitudes work together to pursue the good, the true, and the beautiful in, in concrete daily actions. And we're called not to be prideful or greedy or lustful, uh, or, or have unjust anger, or gluttony, or envy towards another, or sloth, or, or acedia. Uh, we're, we're called also not to be the opposites of those, self-loathing, or wasteful, or prudish towards things sexual, or practice servility, or, or deficiency of, of good created things, things that are good for us. You know, the opposite of gluttony would be deficiency, for example. Or uh, to be too cowardice or too timid, or to be a workaholic, which is the opposite of the slothful person. So th- there's, there's these teachings of the church that we know through revealed moral law, through the revealed divine law, and which the church up and revealed through scripture and which the church upholds through her tradition and magisterial teachings. So you mentioned a phrase that I found interesting at the beginning of your comments about how some of the teachings of the ch- of how the, the teachings of the church could be a stumbling to grace on the sexual life issues. Well, it can't be a stumbling to grace because it's truth. What's a stumbling to grace is what's objective mortal sin. For example, adultery outside of marriage fornication for the unmarried, uh, homosexual activity, um, pedophilia, um, pornography, uh, murder. Uh, th- th- these are the things that, that we know, again, through the revealed law of the Ten Commandments, the Eight Beatitudes, the Church's constant teaching tradition uh, of what constitutes sinful matter. So I'm not saying that these people are committing mortal sins subjectively, but I'm just saying that objectively, we know that these different categories that I'm giving, the, the, the alcoholic, the glutton, whatever, um, objectively, it's sinful matter, and it's, it's not good for the pursuance of the good, the true, and the beautiful. That's what the church teaches. And so our goal is to always be willing to have open arms, to meet the individual where they're at. Um, you know, there, there's a saying, I believe it was from the Ar- Cardinal Archbishop of, of London, I forget his name, his, his name escapes me right now, but he says, the church uh, loves us enough to meet us where we're at, but she loves us too much to let us remain where we are at, if where we are at is contrary to a life of virtue, holiness, and sanctifying grace to one day attain heaven. So the church's teachings are there to be very merciful. Um, my new book, Catholic Essentials, has 10 chapters just on the mercy of God. Um, and, and that's falling in different parent, parent categories of morals, dogma, and liturgy and sacraments. There's, there's 10 different chapters on, the, on God's mercy. So the teachings are there. Our goal, is, our goal is to be good, effective teachers, to want to help those uh, in any way who are leading a life that is contrary to the pursuance of the good, the true, and the beautiful, and to lead them back to the fullness of God's sanctifying grace, to help someone live their baptism, their confirmation, to receive Holy Communion, the most Holy Eucharist, in a state of grace, the true body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, monthly confession, um, and so forth. Uh, Last week's uh, episode on the transgender movement, the fifth episode, had the priest who heads up Courage, who did a a beautiful, masterful job explaining the church's pastoral approach across the board 
uh, to sinners in general, let alone individuals who might suffer from same-sex attraction. Just the church's approach to, uh, of accompaniment to be there. And, and again, uh, the church loving them to meet them where they're, loving them enough to meet them where they're at, but loving them too much to let them stay where they are at, uh, if where they are at is contrary to a, a life of, 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 of the pursuance of virtue and virtuous living in God's sanctifying grace. The, the greatest love that one can have for another in this life is to one day want to see them in heaven. Uh, it's the absolute greatest love one, one can have for another in this life, along with laying down their life for them in, in a case of martyrdom. And then even beyond this life, beyond this earthly life of an average of 79 years, which are the latest longevity statistics, the greatest love that one can have for another is again to one day want to see them in heaven for all eternity, the, to behold the beatific vision, to behold eternal beatitude, um, to behold God face to face with the company of the members of the church triumphant in heaven, uh, which will go way, way, way beyond an average of 79 years. It's for eternity. Uh, that's my goal. So uh, th that's the church's goal. That's my goal as a priest to want to preach the truth. Um, I would recommend checking the section on virtue and virtuous living in the catechism, which begins with number 1803. And interestingly enough, the, virtue, the, the section on virtue and virtuous living uh, comes right after the section on the reality of sin as, as fallen moral creatures uh, human persons, intellectual, rational creatures with intellect, will, memory, and imagination who are fallen because of the state of the original sin, and, and, and there's brokenness in the world, there's wars, there's wounds, uh, there's divorce, there's child abuse, there's sudden tragedies and death like car accidents. Uh, but, but we're to realize this woundedness and to be able to uh, recognize it for what it is and what we're called to beyond it and that we want to be able to share this good news, this great message with others. So that's a beautiful section of the Catechism. It's one of my favorites, uh, the section on virtue and virtuous living, beginning with number 1803. And then as a, as a, a counter to that, and, I, and you said you yourself hadn't read the Theology of the Body yet, I would recommend that you look at some of the th major tenets of the Theology of the Body. Um, they're, they're very, very uh, enlightening. Um, and... Uh, and not only that, but also look at, this, at the section of the Catechism on the reality of sin, the moral section on sin, whether venial or mortal, and how it affects not only our own life personally. Sin is always a personal act, but it affects not only our own life personally, it affects our social relationships with others, it affects the reality of the Church's makeup, the ecclesial reality of, 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 of sin, and, and uh, how sin affects the, ecclesiolo the ecclesiology of the Church. Um, and then lastly, uh, the cosmic reality of sin. So these are what are called the four categorical consequences to sin, the personal, the social, the ecclesial, and the cosmic, is what I was trying to say. The, the personal, social, ecclesial, and cosmic. That's number 1459 uh, of the Catechism. Uh, so it, again, it's very, very telling, uh, the reality of sin, the reality of, of woundedness, and so forth. Uh, I'd like to recommend, too, if I might, my book, Overcoming the Evil Within, The Reality of Sin and the Transforming Power of God's Grace and Mercy. Um, and and th that's been a, a, received good reviews, and people especially have been enamored, because I've received many letters about it, many, many posts about it, and, and texts about it. Uh, people have been very enamored with Chapter 3 on how to make a good, holy, reverent confession. 
And you couple a good, holy, reverent confession with, um, you know, regular reception of the Eucharist and, and, and show God you're really striving in whatever it is. I mean, it could be drug use, whatever it is, illicit drug use, whatever it is, it, 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 adultery of the heterosexual, it doesn't matter. Uh, it could be uh, someone who's lustful in his heterosexual marriage. You know, there is such a thing as rape in marriage. That's out of order. That's not proper. That's not right. Uh, or, or something that makes the other spouse feel uncomfortable. That's not correct either. So it doesn't even have to be adultery. It could be anything that takes us out of our pursuance of virtue and virtuous living. Uh, there's a great book on the theology of the body by Jean-Claude Larchette. Uh, L-A-R-C-H-E-T, could be a silent T, I don't know, but Jean-Claude Lachette, uh, L-A-R-C-H-E-T, Theology of the Body, uh, that's a good one that I recommend. And uh, again, Overcoming the Evil Within, and also those two sections in the Catechism, beginning with 1803 and beginning with uh, 1470. So thank you for your, your call today and for your statements. Appreciate it. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. We'll stay in Texas. Robin is listening on the EWTN app, a first-time caller today. Robin, you are on with Father Wade Menezes. Oh, thank you, Father, for taking my call. My question uh, for you is, this month of November, we're supposed to um, have the people in purgatory in mind and pray for them. If a soul goes to purgatory, how does it exactly get cleansed before it could go and see God? Yeah, that's a great question. How is the expiation carried out is is what you're asking. And, and all we can answer is what the Church answers in this regard, and that is we look to Scripture, which talks about a purifying fire, for example. Um, re, for example, regarding the fact that total purification is needed before one can enter into heaven, because only all purity and non-attachment to sin can enter heaven to be with God for all eternity. We, we read this in Hebrews twelve fourteen: strive for the peace with all and for that holiness without which no one will ever see the Lord. So absolute holiness, absolute purity, right? So the fact that the purification has to be total. Um, and then 1 Peter 1.7 is very telling. It says, So that the genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold, which through perishable, which though perishable, is tested by a fire, may redound to the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So that talks about a purifying fire, huh? Um, uh, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. That's Acts 14, 22. Uh, Revelations 21, 27, the book of the Apocalypse, we read, but nothing unclean shall enter paradise. Okay, uh, so the importance of, of atoning for temporal punishment for already forgiven mortal and venial sin, either now in this life while still living, which you can do so by embracing your suffering and offering up in union with Christ's own cross, by carrying out any of the 14 works of mercy with that intention uh, to atone for your temporal punishment while still living on earth, uh, the three eminent good works, uh, pursuing a plenary or partial indulgence. There's all kinds of ways we can atone for our temporal punishment while still living on earth. Atoning for the temporal punishment for those in purgatory, the holy souls in purgatory, the members of the church suffering, also referred to as the members of the church penitent, is what your question especially revolves around and how that purification is carried out. It remains a mystery. Um, we don't know exactly, we can't say it's fire per se, because of the four senses of Scripture, the literal and the spiritual. And, and the spiritual has three subsets, the moral, the allegorical, and the anagogical. Uh, is it an actual physical fire? We don't know. Um, but we do know that it's a purification 
process. We do know that it's purgative. That's why it's called purgatory. Um, also, uh, our Lord says this in Matthew 5, make friends quickly with your accuser while you still have time, while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you then be put in prison in reference to a purgative state, uh, truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. That's Matthew 5, 25, 26. And Luke 12, 58 and 59 says something very similar. As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him along the way, lest he drag you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Uh, so th- there you go. It, you know, it's, it's a holy and pious practice to pray for the dead. We know this from uh, Maccabees uh, chapter 12. Uh, and we know that the purgation is just that, a purgation. It's, it's a purgative state. Um, Pope Benedict XVI called uh, pur- purgatory both a place and a state. In other words, it's a state of purgation, and it's carried out in a certain place, right? Um, but the good news is, is that the holy souls in purgatory are assured heaven. The, the holy souls in purgatory are the ones who, at the time of their earthly death, had not yet uh, been cleansed of the temporal punishment due to their already forgiven mortal and venial sins. And so... Uh, they have to atone for that now after their death. But the reality is, it is possible to atone for your temporal punishment, for your already forgiven mortal and venial sins, while still living on earth. And that's what I pray for in my morning offering, is that I pray for the grace to uh, have the fortitude and the courage to embrace all forms of suffering, for example, uh, the zeal to carry out plenary indulgences for myself, uh, to do good works, not for the works themselves, but for the charity they help prosper. I pray for the stamina and for the greatest grace to have the stamina to, to do all these things, thereby being able to atone for temporal punishment now while I'm still living, thereby attaining the greatest of all graces of entering heaven immediately upon my death. If the truth be known, faith tells us one of the three theological virtues, right? Faith tells us that that's God's plan A for us, is to go straight to heaven when we die. That's God's plan A for us. His plan B for us, if you want to call it that, his plan B for us would be to go to purgatory, because at least the holy souls in purgatory are assured heaven, right? You know, one of the reasons why I wrote uh, The Four Last Things, A Catechetical Guide to Death, Judgment, Heaven, and Hell, and I'm holding up the book now uh, to the live YouTube feed and Facebook feed, one of the reasons why I wrote it is that uh, I met a lot of Catholics, too many Catholics, who believed, these are good, strong, practicing Catholics, mind you, who believed that going to purgatory was automatic. There was no way to avoid it. Well, that's a heresy. That's an absolute heresy. The church does not teach that. Purgatory is about one thing and one thing only. The need to atone for temporal punishment for your already forgiven mortal and venial sins, if at the time of your earthly death you have not yet atoned for that temporal punishment. Meaning thereby, if you have atoned for that temporal punishment at the time of your earthly death, there's no need to go to purgatory. Why does temporal punishment remain after we've had the sins forgiven, whether mortal or venial? Mortal in the sacrament of confession and venial uh, through the sacrament of confession or through other ways, like the penitential rite at the beginning of Mass, for example. Uh, Why does the temporal punishment remain after the mortal sin and or venial sin has been forgiven? Because sin is messy. 
This is why I, I referred our last caller to look at the section on sin. Sin is messy. There's four categorical consequences to sin, personal, social, ecclesial, and cosmic. You want the reality of the cosmic consequences of sin? Look at the book of Genesis and what happened to the beautiful Garden of Eden when it closed in on itself. You want the, the consequence of the, the ecclesiastical consequences of, of sin, personal sin? Look how the priestly scandals have rocked the church, huh? But the devil's after priests, just like he's after laity. He doesn't want anybody to think there's any such thing as sin, mortal or venial. He doesn't want anybody to think that there's no such thing as a hell. He doesn't want anybody to think that there's no such thing as an addiction, an issue, a dependency, or woundedness. Oh, I'm not wounded. This is how I am. No, there, there very well could be woundedness there. You know, so it, regardless of what the faux pas is, whether it's an issue, dependency, or full-blown addiction, uh, the devil wants us to think that none of these things exists. And that's his biggest ploy. That's his biggest lie right there. And so there are personal, social, ecclesial, and cosmic consequences to sin. And this is why the temporal punishment reigns. But as far as how the purgation is taken, how the purgation takes place per se, uh, qua purgation, as purgation, uh, the church is silent on that because we just don't know, given the senses of Scripture. Now, some of the saints in their private revelation, and this is approved private revelation, for example, like St. Faustina and, and Catherine Emmerich, uh, talk about an actual physical fire that is non-engulfing of, of, of the soul, uh, but because the, but the, the soul is a material, but is still a type of torment in the purgation process. But that's private revelation of the saints. And although it's approved, uh, private revelation is not needed for salvation. Now, we're smart to read the lives of the saints, because they were given special graces uh, to write what they wrote, to see what they saw, and to hear what they heard in their locutions, especially once they went under deep scrutiny by the authority of the Church, to have them approved. So again, like St. Faustina's revelations, when Faustina shows us purgatory in her diary, she walks through purgatory and describes it. St. Faustina walks through hell in her diary and writes about it, and, and describes it for us in her diary. Uh, very, very telling. So those, those writings, although approved, are not needed for uh, salvation, but we're silly to not want to look at them. We're silly to not want to read the lives of the saints. One thing I like to tell, about, tell my listeners is that the, the, the saints of the Catholic Church lived in the modern world of their time, just like we live in the modern world of our time. If they did it, that is, they became a saint. If they did it, we can do it. So does that help you out as far as the purgation? We, we, we simply just don't know the actualities of it all, because of what Scripture says is what we go by, the tradition of the Church, including private revelation that's approved. Uh, but other than that, we know it's a state and we know it's a place. Does that help you out, Robin? Thank you. It really does. Thank you very much. Very enlightening. You're welcome. Thank you. God bless you. Quickly, we'll head to Kathy in Omaha, Nebraska. She's listening on Spirit Catholic Radio. Kathy, you are on with Father Wade. Hi, Father. Thank you for taking my call. Um, just a real quick question. My husband is, is a convert. He's 74 years old. He came into the Church about two and a half years ago. Very, very strong Catholic. But we were having a discussion last night, and he wanted to know the necessity of saying an act of contrition every evening before you go to bed when we go to confession at least once a month. And he yeah, great. Great. Well, remember, confession, absolutely speaking, is only for mortal sins. That's the ordinary way that mortal sins are forgiven. Venial sins may be taken to confession, but they don't have to be taken to confession. There's other ways venial sins are forgiven, like I just intimated in the, with the last caller. The penitential rite at Mass, uh, taking the venial sins to confession, you can do that. Uh, then there's the, the penitential rite at Mass. There's the carrying out of the three eminent good works, or the 14 works of mercy. Again, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but not for the works themselves, but for the charity they help prosper, right? 
from human person to human person. When we do the works, the 14 works of mercy, seven for the body, seven for the soul, or the three eminent good works, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, with the uh, specific willed intention of doing the work uh, to have our venial sins forgiven, a blessing oneself with holy water while making a mental intention at that very moment to recall to mind one's baptism. St. Jean Vianney said that that wipes away venial sin, and that's part of the Church's teaching patrimony. Uh, So there's different ways that venial sins are forgiven. Venial sins do not cut off supernatural charity, but mortal sins do, and the supernatural relationship with God. Venial sins do not. Venial sins constrict the supernatural charity, and they constrict our relationship with God, but they do not sever it like mortal sin does. Mortal sin is grave matter, fullness of knowledge, and done with deliberate consent of your will. So the daily act of contrition is a wonderful way to end your day to be forgiven of any venial sins you might have committed that day. It also is great to grow in self-knowledge, because prior to the act of contrition, before you hit the pillow at night, you make what's called a general examine, a general examination of your conscience, where you look at your whole day individually. How did I do here? How did I do there? Just It's about a 90-second, a minute to 90-second exercise, an examination of conscience, where you're looking at your whole day generally. That's why it's called the general examination of conscience. And then you close it with an act of contrition. The particular examination of conscience is when you look at a particular virtue you're trying to advance or a particular vice you're trying to root out, and you do that at midday. The midday one is called the particular examination of conscience. The end of the day one, which you said you and your husband do, is called the general examination of conscience. So whether particular or general, the the daily examination of conscience, followed by the act of contrition, which does wipe away venial sins, if you have the mental willed intention at the moment that you're praying it, that it do just that, um, it helps us grow in self-knowledge. And self-knowledge is the first step needed to grow in personal holiness and sanctity. St. Thomas Aquinas teaches. We need good self-knowledge to grow in holiness. Know your virtues to advance them. Know your vices to begin to uproot them. Confession month once a month is very, very laudable. It's a very laudable practice. But why wait only for your monthly confession to have your venial sins forgiven? Why not want your venial sins forgiven daily? either through your daily act of contrition or your daily mass during the penitential rite, if you're a daily mass goer. Why wait till the end of the month to have your, your venial sins forgiven, your daily faults and weaknesses forgiven that may not even be venial that you still want to ask God forgiveness for, say your ill temperament uh, that you want to work on and improve. Not, not that it's sinful per se, venially, but you know that there's areas of improvement in your, in your ill temperament. Um, so th- this helps us grow in self-knowledge, right? And then also uh, the monthly confession, I, I said it earlier, show me a person who goes to confession faithfully once a month, and chances are they will only have venial sins to confess. Uh, why is that? Well, it's the, it's the practice of a monthly confession per se that is keeping them away from mortal sin, and that's a beautiful thing. For example, if you go each month and honor the first Friday devotion to the Sacred Heart or the first Saturday devotion on the Immaculate Heart. So I hope that helps you out. It's a beautiful practice that you and your husband do, both monthly confession and the nightly examination of conscience. Father, where can they find more about the Fathers of Mercy? At fathersofmercy.com. And would you leave us with a blessing? I certainly will, Jack. May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit descend upon all of our Open Line Tuesday listeners and remain with each and every one of you this day and always. St. Joseph, Terror of Demons. Pray for us on behalf of our host, Father Wade Menezes, our producer, Michael McCall, call screener Matt Kubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in. Back at it 